Welcome everyone to the 12 Inquiries. My name is Luis Sosa. I'm one of your co-hosts, along with my buddy, David, I'm, I'm co-host number two. We are two dudes in their 40s who like to do deep dives into things and hope that you will enjoy listening to us banter about it. Today's inquiry is about mental health broadly, but specifically about our own experiences navigating an evolving relationship with what mental health means and all the things that kind of tie into it. And in a way, it's not unrelated to our previous inquiries, Twitter, masculinity, tech nostalgia, it, it's, it's all connected. It's true. It's all connected. It's our podcast. It's the through line. It is. It is the through line. You know, I'm, I'm going to start it off, if that's okay with you, David, with the question that I posed when I shared Craig Maud's Tokyo pop-up newsletter. And in it, he closes, I think it was the fifth or sixth day of it with, as he spends time in the city that he spent a lot of time in as a 20-something-year-old, he imagines what he would say to that version of himself that's navigating that city for the first time and what advice he would give to himself. And so I want to ask you, where were you in your early 20s geographically? And what advice would you give yourself? In my early 20s, I was still running away from what was like a somewhat traumatic or difficult childhood that I had. And the succinct advice that I would give to myself would be to give myself permission to recognize that I didn't have a quote unquote typical childhood. And I don't know that there is a typical childhood, but maybe some are more typical than others. And I don't know if this was your experience, Luis. I know that we both grew up with parents and circumstances that are probably different from a lot of our friends, right? And when I was in my teenage years, I, what I experienced, I thought was just normal. You grow up thinking that your experiences are normal because you don't really have a good point of comparison. Or maybe I wasn't brave enough to ask my friends, like, what is your, <laughs> what is your family life like? What's your relationship with your mom like? And I think in my 20s, I was really just kind of looking for coping mechanisms, trying to escape pain and not wanting to deal with it. I was letting that, I was letting a lot of that pain and those experiences resurface in romantic relationships and friendships. I just didn't have the tools. So if I were to give myself any advice at all, it would be, um, you know, my younger self, it would be just accept the fact that you did have a difficult childhood. Don't try to normalize it and then take your time. Th like, things are going to get better from here, but you're going to have to deal with it. My own experience starts from a, from a similar baseline, not a typical childhood, fascinating, complicated, very loving parents from my side, both a mother and father, uh, but both with their own mental health challenges. But whereas you were shaping things, the narrative in your head was this is normal, my narrative was this is extraordinarily cool. This makes me special. So the childhood that was filled with, with, with a lot of travel, with a lot of moving around, with a lot of different apartments, with a lot of, you know, like airplanes and cities. And I internalized it as a, as a narrative of how fabulous my upbringing was because I spent, you know, when I was 12 years old, I spent nine months living in London because we were going to move there, but then we didn't. And so basically I just skipped a year of school and then came back to Houston and just kind of 
got to stay in my year because the teachers rightfully thought it would be more disruptive to hold me back. So I was fine, but it also felt fabulous to be like, I didn't go to school for nine months because I lived at the Blake's Hotel in Soho in London. So, um, and I still say it with a smile on my face because it's taken me 40 years to give myself permission to say, yes, that's one framing. And that framing was a, a defense mechanism as well to say, no, it wasn't trauma. It was fabulous. Whereas now I, I can say, no, 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 it was traumatic. It was not like a steady upbringing for any child or adolescent. And that's, and it's okay to acknowledge that. It's okay to acknowledge I can work from that place. So similar message to myself would be, it's, it's okay for you to think it's fabulous, but it, it's also not. And finding the way to deal with those two truths would be, and is a part of my sort of continuous mental health journey. It's so interesting to grow up with really quirky parents who are moving around constantly. Like I didn't, I never went to the same school for more than two years. I never lived in the same house for more than two years until I met you in Mexico City in my 20s. Like all the way from zero up until my late 20s, I was constantly on the move, mostly as a result of my parents. And then I kind of inherited it. And I don't know if I thought that was fabulous the way that you experienced it, but my friends certainly did. And the fact I also skipped, a, like just didn't go to school for a year. They called it homeschooling, but I don't remember like learning anything that during that time. And in fact, what I remember is kind of taking care of using that year to take care of my younger sister while my mom was off doing other things. And how, how old were you? Like 12. I think I was 12. My Same. sister was two or three. Yeah. It's a weird time. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a tough time to then go back into middle school and right. It's like puberty and all that stuff. But I just remember my friends constantly saying, wow, your parents are so cool. Like they would just take when I was 12 or 13, they would just take off and I would be by myself. I grew up. I think we both grew up really independent, which has a lot of pluses. But in Mexico, especially, I mean, I'm curious because you went back and forth between the U.S. and Mexico quite a, a lot. bit. And but most of this period was in the U.S. Okay. Mexico happened my last year of middle school, like half of my last year of middle school towards my first year of high school. Prior to that, it was it was London, a lot in, in Texas. So, and, and then it was the experience of switching from one parent mom to a different parent who, you know, brought with it a, a totally different structure. In some ways, even more lack of parental oversight because it was Mexico and there were, you know, there was, you know, there was a staff of, of like chauffeurs and people that would help around the house. Like at the time, it was a period in my father's life when he was doing very, very well for himself. And so I moved to, to this experience where it was suddenly like, oh my God, there's, you know, there's people that, you know, there's help around the house that'll help with cleaning. And like, there's a cook. It was very weird and also completely unregulated. So similar in that sense. If we have time, I want to go back to this issue of how we grew up and mental health and money, because I think both of our parents experienced times of having lots of money and times of having no money and what it's like to yes. grow up with that. But first, I, w I want to stay on this point of growing up really independent and with not consistent guidance. So I, I can tell you something that I talked to, to talk to my therapist about. It, I've got an anti-authority bent. I know where it comes from. It comes from my parents not being around when I was growing up. And then every once in a while, they would step in and they're like, 
okay, we're back. We're going to be parents. We're going to discipline you or we're going to set the rules. And I'm like, okay, welcome back. But no, I set the rules for myself. Like I'm totally independent. And if I perceive someone else as being illegitimate in their authority of not deserving it, then I won't listen to it. The consent of the governed, man. Does that happen to you? Yeah. Well, you know, so I remember taking it in stride, but also with a certain amount of humor. And there's this very crystal clear moment in my in my relationship with with being overly independent as an adolescent. I was maybe 15 or 16. And my entire academic career, the message was always very similar. It's Luis is a very bright student. He could really excel if he applied himself. And at a very young age, I internalized this belief that if I could get B's and the occasional C just with whatever I brought to the table inherently in terms of intelligence, there wasn't enough motivation to work hard for the A's and the B pluses. Like it just, that was me for years and years and years. But one semester I had teachers at my school in Mexico and it was a British school. So it was, the curriculum was in English and I liked a lot of the teachers. And so I was genuinely connecting and interested with the topic. So I I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the thing that you're supposed to do. I'm going to study hard and I'm going to get good grades. And because of that, I'm also going to show my report card to my father and inform him of parent-teacher meetings, which I would never do. I would always just tell teachers that my dad was busy and he was working and that there was no way he could make a parent-teacher and that he was very, very sorry. But this one year, I said, I'm going to do it right. So I applied myself. My grades obviously went up. And when parent-teacher conference week came around, I told my dad in advance and I showed him the little list. I was like, these are the slots for you to talk to my different teachers. Uh, when would you like me to schedule you? So he's like, oh, well, next, whatever, Tuesday. And then I forgot about it entirely. Until the day after that scheduled day, I show up to school and all of my teachers ask me, Luis, we're so sorry your dad didn't make it. And I did two things. One, I instinctually covered for him because as a teenager, I thought that's what you're supposed to do. I, I was like trained to like, yeah, I cover for my dad no matter what. So I lied and I said, so sorry. We had a family emergency, an aunt got sick. Blah. I made up a whole thing and they bought it. I didn't even tell my dad. I was like, oh, he didn't show, whatever. I think three or four days later, he calls me and I'm hanging out with friends and he has this very serious, you know, like voice. And he's like, son, I want to, I want to talk to you about, uh, about your school and your grades. He's like, I spoke to your teachers and they tell me that, you know, that you really could be making more of an effort, that you're they're very smart and you could really, you know, like you could really excel if you really work harder at it. And I know you told me that you're doing a little bit better, but, but I still think you could do more. And I was like, no way. And when, when did you talk to my teachers? And without missing a beat, he says, the parent teacher's night, of course. Totally. I totally relate to this. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and I was just, I was in sort of shock and I had to stifle a laugh. And I was like, wow, dad, that's, that's amazing. They, they told me that you didn't make it. Long pause. And then in Spanish, because this was in Spanish, he says to me, ese no es el punto. <laughs> That's not the point. He's like, the point is you could be doing better. And then I took a long pause and I thought, he's not wrong. I probably could. So I just left it at that. I was like, okay, I'll try. And I hung up. 
And that one moment exemplifies the kind of weirdness of a childhood where mostly self-governed, occasionally a parent would sort of, you know, helicopter drop in. And in my dad's case, kind of try to bluff his way through parenting, like a facsimile of what he thought it would be. That's not to say there weren't some genuine parenting moments, because there were with my father, but it was never the ones I thought it was going to be. And it was always kind of random and completely inconsistent. I relate to that so much. I feel like my mom prepared me very well for our current moment of the post-truth world. where you don't, like, There's this factor of truthiness. You don't know what's really true or not. But, you know, for me, I reacted to that by going the other extreme where I'm obsessed. And this is this is why I wanted to go into journalism after college. I'm obsessed with finding out what is the truth and who who is reliably narrating what happened from their perspective and who's just trying to advance their own privilege or what they what they want to see um and so you know for me that touches on a larger point of like what are the things from your parents that you rebelled against and you said i am not going to be that when i grow up and then what are the things where you see your parents in yourself because this happens to me where i'm like oh god i really am much more like my mother in certain ways than than I anticipated or than I let myself believe. It does catch you off guard when you start realizing that in many ways you are becoming or internalizing more about your parents than you thought you might. It's been kind of a moving target because as a kid, I I looked up to my father as a very successful businessman who made a lot of money and was always very charming very flirty. I mentioned that a little bit on the on the Twitter space uh, or our podcast rather on masculinity. And and so I, I admired that because I thought that was that was cool. I thought that was a role model, right? Someone who who had a lot of money, who took financially care of people because he did. He supported a lot of people and, and a lot of people depended on him. I also saw the Godfather with him for the first time as a teenager. So, you know, it, it shaped my perspective of my father as this larger than life figure. And I grew up in that period, rejecting my mom as someone who had a lot of unresolved mental illness that was too complex to deal with and that created a lot of truthiness that at some point I was just like, I don't even want to deal with this truthiness. I don't want to suss out how much of what my mom is saying is true or not. I just rejected the whole thing. As an adult, it's flipped a little bit. Uh, my father my father is no longer this larger than life figure. He's very human. Uh, I think he's a very loving man. He always has been, and, and I, I appreciate and I connect with that. But many of the things that I idolized him for as a teenager fell apart. You know, he, he lost he lost his money. I mean, he's fine. You know, but he's a he's a comfortable middle class guy in his you know mid seventies now, and so a lot of the accessories that revolved around him were stripped away. And it left me kind of having to reinvent a relationship with my father in my 30s and, and even to this day. My mother went through almost an inverse process where her, her mental health challenges caused her to hit some very difficult barriers and she overcame them. And so now my mom is this figure that I, I find myself admiring a great deal. She can still be like, all moms, a bit of a pain sometimes, but but I've it's allowed me to look at her and go like, wow, that's that's fucking great. Like, yeah, mom's a survivor, and there's something to that 
that I, I'm starting to like applaud in her and acknowledge in her. And that's opened up a road to see that in myself a little bit as well, to go like, if my, if my mom could do that, I can get through, you know, whatever, this deadline or the fact that I have high blood pressure or whatever, or my anxiety or insomnia. Like, so that's that's been kind of this weird flip over the past 20 something years. My mother can be one of the most charismatic people that I know. Same. And so when people meet her for the first time, they're like, whoa, this woman's incredible. It's only when you're very close to the charisma that you realize that it can be highly manipulative. But then mm -hmm. when you get far enough away from it, you can really admire the resilience and just the talent of it. And I think we've both experienced that. And for me, it took therapy. It took so I had to talk to a therapist in order to see in order to get in touch with my younger self and really relate to what it was like to grow up being me in order for me to see that in my own mom and see her as also what was it like for my mother to be seven years old and then to grow up and have the life that she did. And I really had to distance myself from being her son and just seeing her as a person. It took me so long to be able to see her just as an ordinary person. And I've also come to respect her. Sometimes I have to put up with 10 minute, you know, audio voice messages and I'll listen to the first few seconds. But it's it's pretty I mean, it is pretty incredible what she's been able to do. It's nice to be able to gain that distance and then see your parents and admire them as individuals. Your relationship with your parents changes as they become people and stop being parents entirely. And so I want to pivot to this idea of mental health and what we're responsible for. Let me frame it in this way. I definitely think that for most of my 20s and 30s, it was never like, it wasn't my fault. So the fault was in external factors all the time, constantly. The reason that I wasn't happy, the reason that I had anxiety, the reason that my relationships were uh, fraught with, with codependence and peril, not physical peril, um, was external to me. It was always things were happening to me. And there was very little sense of agency over my own mental health beyond very immediate coping mechanisms, compulsively buying things or, um, you know, alcohol was never really a big one for me, but occasionally, you know, or, or just being self-destructive in, in, in a way that I thought was fabulous and tied with my narrative as a 20-something-year-old wannabe actor. It took a long while before I realized, oh, no, this, like, again, like, I, I can't keep blaming mom and dad. I can't keep blaming, you know, the 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 crazy girl that I dated. Like, it, it, it was no longer external. It was like, oh, I have to own this. And that was a really sobering moment for me when I realized, shit, it's mine. Yeah, no, I appreciate you framing it that way. There's something so powerful about this realization or feeling of it's not my fault. Like when I'm sad, when I'm anxious, things that get in the way of my goals. I think that's why there's so much debate and power over mental health diagnosis, right? When someone is diagnosed as like anxious, depressive or bipolar. And when you get a prescription, if you're diagnosed as ADHD, you're like, oh, thank God. It's not my fault that I'm distracted. It's a condition. Um, and for me, I had a very similar experience after I read two books about borderline personality disorder. 
one called um, Stop Walking on Eggshells, and the other called I Hate You, Please Don't Leave Me. <laughs> they were like great titles for the books. And both of those books made me realize the way that I grew up in my childhood was not my fault. And connected to that, I am where I am today, and it is up to me where I want to go from here. I listen to a guided meditation pretty frequently that's like, where you are is where you are. You know, it's like, you get to choose what you do next. And that sense of agency of like, oh yeah, we've all inherited something in some way. We've all experienced something and it was not our fault. What you can take responsibility for is now the so what? What are you gonna do going forward? And when I had that realization after reading those books, I felt so empowered not just to make my own life better and to make me feel better, um, but also my marriage, my friendships, my relationship with my with other family members. Um, it was it was a huge wake up for me. Did you have something? Do you have something similar to that? Like how how do you deal with a sense of fault, responsibility, and and agency? Because there are because sometimes we do fuck up, right? And it's and it's like this is on me like i need to do a better job of of this thing i have other people in my family and extended family that in contrast to me seemed worse off dealt with addictions with you know eating disorders with severe depression and so for a very long time i thought that i was the one that kind of got off scot-free I was like, I'm, 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 I'm the normal one. And so one of the things that really shifted for me, because I, like, I, I knew my mom had mental health challenges. She had been upfront about it and then would just gaslight the shit out of it because that was part of the condition. So it wasn't, it wasn't something that I was unfamiliar with. Right. But it was never something that made me think, what's my baseline? Where's my mental health? Because it was always like, well, I'm not, I'm not as bad as that. And so anything else that would happen, I would just sort of ignore it or cope with, you know, crappy, you know, sort of anesthetizing coping mechanisms and just muddle along. It wasn't really until those things stopped working in my late 30s and suddenly I'm dealing with insomnia for the first time in my life and high blood pressure and a herniated back. And I, I have to start paying attention to these, you know, you can't keep driving the car while all the dashboard lights are blinking red uh, indefinitely. You can for a while, you know, but eventually things stop functioning well. And that's basically what happened to me. And as one does, when things stop functioning, it forces you to look at things. And so I had to kind of start looking under hood, under the hood and say, okay, what, what's going on with me? What's going on with my physical health? So I want us to get a little bit into the practice of therapy because I feel like a lot of people, and especially dudes, I feel like there's a, there's a new cultural acceptance to say that therapy is great. I do therapy. Uh, Jay-Z says it. Brad Pitt says it, right? It's in the culture. But we don't talk about like the conversations we have with our therapists and what we get out of therapy. So I want to get into that. But before we do, can we zoom out a little bit? Um, yeah. From our experience with mental health and understanding a little bit better how our childhoods affected our way of seeing the world and what causes anxiety and insomnia to the broader cultural 
context or the, the cultural conversation right now. You and I, we before we started recording, I shared a little bit my ambivalence about talking about mental health in public because I feel like we've gone from one extreme of not being able to talk about it at all, especially as guys, to now, especially here in San Francisco in the Bay Area, to talking about trauma and therapy and mental health all the time. And I feel like sometimes we're a little too eager to share it. And so, you know, I, I, I guess I don't always feel comfortable talking about it because it feels like it's become a badge of honor or a way to score points. And that's not what I want it to be. On the other hand, to this day, so many of my friends would still benefit from seeing a therapist and have yet to do it because it feels scary or it feels like a recognition of something being wrong rather than just a really useful tool to make life better. So the question I want to put to you is, what do you get out of therapy? So I'm going to sidestep the question or rather put it, put it on the shelf for a second because I want to first acknowledge that I think like a lot of things that become culturally accepted and then even popular it's a little bit like saying oh i i i used to listen to that band back when they were no one you know it's it's you, you they become cultural signaling that we use to say i'm part of your tribe you know and and and, and there's a part of that that's normal and, and i think it's very positive broadly that that's happening because it makes it so that people are more comfortable. You got to normalize it. Exactly. It's normalization. So I think the normalization aspect of it is awesome. But I also think that like anything, it can become this, this signaling. It can become a little bit of a, uh, of an accessory to the person. And so I'm quick and easy to say, yes, I've gone to therapy. Yes, I deal with insomnia. Yes, I, you know, but, and that's it. Like, I don't get into it. I get into it if, if I'm asked, if there's a context for it. And, and I think that's super important, um, the context in which those conversations happen, because I do think that there's a lot of signaling. And when you get the Brad Pitt and the John Hamm talking about mental health and therapy, uh, it makes it cool because these are cool dudes, right? So you're like, oh, Brad Pitt's talking about therapy. Hey, you know, like I, 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 do, I do therapy too. Maybe I'm a little cool, like, like him. Um, but getting back to your question, which uh, I put on a shelf and now I forgot what's on there. What do you get out of therapy? Like beyond just it being good or helpful. And it's not always helpful, right? We've talked about that. I want to acknowledge one of the things about therapy is that therapy is really hit and miss. It can be profoundly frustrating. It can work really well for a while and then you plateau and then you just, you know, there, I just read an article, I think it was on the New York Times on how to fire your therapist because it's a, it's a thing and it's hard. And some people will stay 20 years with the same person just because they don't want to fire a therapist. What have I gained out of therapy? I'm, I'm between therapists right now, but from the like last year and a half stretch that I did, the biggest thing was permission, really. It was permission to see things a little bit differently. I gained a different perspective on, on myself, on my own narrative. That was the biggest thing. It, it, yes, some tools, but not, not so much. It wasn't so much the specific tools. It was more about allowing myself to see things or embrace truths basically okay but let me put it a different way then what because i've kept a journal practice for a really long time we both use day one i know that i use it more often than you do and so i've been pretty skeptical about the value of a therapist because i'm like well i 
put it down on paper. Like it's right there. I see all my reflections. I do reflect on like, how am I feeling? Why am I feeling this way? So why do I need to go speak at someone who's writing on a notepad about it? And I discovered that I have way more blind spots about myself than I thought I did. I was, I thought I was way more self-aware, like, oh, I connect the patterns. I see what's going on here. But then once my therapist started doing it for me and saying, don't you think that this thing that you told me about your relationship, like um, maybe your skepticism about people who talk about their credentials a lot is related to the story that you told me about your mother or something that happened during childhood. And it happened so many times. It doesn't always happen. And it really depends on who the therapist is. But it happened enough where I was like, oh, wow, I'm not as self-aware as I thought. Or having someone else make these connections for me is hugely useful. Is that true for you? Or like, what's the difference between just keeping a journal versus going to a therapist? From a, from a slightly different place. One, I'm a terrible journaler. I journal when I'm in crisis. And then I stop. So I don't have a consistent journaling practice. It's just I'm in a really bad place. And then I journal. So there are these snapshots of like bad shit is happening and then I journaled and then it petered off and I stopped. I'm really, really, really good at bullshitting myself. So what you call your blind spots, me, in my case, they're, they're kind of intentional. They're not blind spots. They're, this is where I covered this over with bullshit. With You're looking narratives. the other way. I, I'm, or sometimes I'm looking straight at it, but like, you know, I, I papered over the whole you know, like I use Kleenex to fill the hole in the wall that I punched through with rage and I painted over it and it looks like it's solid, but all you have to do is like poke your finger in and it's like going to go straight through. My, those were my blind spots. My blind spots were all camouflaged proactively by that same defensive mechanism that got me to today. So therapy, and, and again, not consistently so because I'm also pretty good at bullshitting a therapist. That's why it's such a trial and error because I really need to find the person who's going to, in their way, call me on these things or spot the inconsistencies in my own narrative. I'm a storyteller. I'm, I'm good at it. And I like my stories. So I'm an audience of one for a lot of these things. It's interesting. I think that both of our moms, as part of their charisma, are also storytellers and that we've in of course. inherited that. It's one of those things for me where I'm like, oh, maybe there is more similarity there than I recognized or, or that I wanted. I mean, for me, the other thing with therapy is that it's really useful to have someone see those patterns and call me, call us out on them. But also something that a couple, so I've seen three different therapists and it's been really use. The one that I have now, I just really work with well, but it was useful to graduate from my other ones. And something that was really has been healing for me, I would say, is to have therapists recognize or even celebrate coping mechanisms that I've developed that I think of as unhealthy. So I was, you know, oh, one thing yeah. I talked to my therapist about is like, oh, I hate that I get in these like rage anger moments when I'm exercising sometimes. Like I'll go on a run and then all of a sudden I'm like filled with adrenaline and rage and I'm just playing out all of these fantasies about all of the people who have wronged me in life. And I'm like, where does that come from? Why, why does my brain do that when I'm running? And she's like, well, you know, if, if that's what you did to get out of the house, if you use exercise as a way to escape what was like a pretty hurtful situation when you were younger, of course, that's the association that you're going to have with it. But then it goes right back to the point that you said of like, okay, that's where that's what happened to you. And now what? Now what do you want to do about that? And I don't want to be an angry exerciser. I don't want to be that guy who's like, you know, on my bike, cursing at everyone in the car in my way. 
And so I'm really making an effort to find joy in exercise. And I have. And so th that I would have never been able to do that on my own. I needed someone to guide me through the process. And that's what therapy was. Sure. For me, that acknowledgement, the seeing things, I, I went back, my first thing was to say perspective. And it's also perspective on some of these coping mechanisms. And it's this exercise where you kind of, you have the conversation, or in my case, you write the letter to your inner child and you say, thank you, because I'm alive. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm more or less well. So thank you for the way that you coped with a very unstable and at times traumatic, yes, loving, yes, fabulous, yes, whatever at times. But so thank you. And that exercise of just acknowledging and thanking myself for it, giving myself permission to do it has been really important. And it extends, that pattern extends to my adult life where I'm often in this kind of, it's not false humility, but it's it's a sort of, I internalize this idea that that I, I didn't want to toot my own horn. It was fine if people congratulate me and you're gracious and you say thank you, but that would often lead me to minimize my own accomplishments and, and do so from a, from a very kind of dark place where it's like, yeah, but yeah, yeah, sure, I've done this, but not this, this, and this. Therapy really helped me gain perspective on myself and a lot of my patterns. With that, I actually want to pivot to this idea of what are... I'll never forget when I started dealing with insomnia, I was in the middle of doing content curation for a big event and the meetings were fairly early for me, like 8.30 in the morning. And I showed up to one so prof late and completely sleep deprived. I'd slept maybe an hour or two. And I was going to try to bullshit my way through the meeting, but I was so tired that I realized that there was no way that they were going to buy whatever, whatever my bullshit reason for how I felt and looked in the fact that I was late. So I walked in and I said, I'm really sorry uh, for being late. I'm dealing with some pretty hardcore insomnia and I've barely slept. And I had a room full of 12, like eight hands shot up. who were like, oh yeah, me time to, yeah, I've got, I've got this and I've got this. And one guy's like, oh, I figured out it works really well. I take, I take a little bit of mel uh, melatonin in the evenings. And I was like, yeah, I've heard that. And he's like, and what do you say? It's like in 10 drops of clonazepam, ribotril. And I was like, I, I don't think it's the melatonin that's doing the trick for you, buddy. <laughs> we all have our recipes. <laughs> but we all have our recipes. So I want to talk about those recipes. What are your recipes? Uh, I want to say something that's not cliche and obvious, but mine are so cliche and obvious and they really work for me. And they are exercise, authentic conversations with people I care about, meditation, and a gratitude journal. I do. It's so dorky, but you know, part of my journaling thing is every morning I spend 15 minutes on a journal entry and it is three things I'm grateful for, three things I learned reading the newspaper or doing my morning reading, and then three intentions that I have for the day. It's, I, that, it's a super nerdy template and God, my life is so much better as a result of it. What about you? I hope you have something more original than me. More fragmented. I've, I've never been as disciplined as you, but one of the things that I latched onto early in my, I, I really went kind of full tilt with therapy when I turned 40. Prior to that, it was fragmented all over the place. But one of the things that I really honed in on is that if I make a ritual out of just about anything, it does a lot of good to my mental health. And oftentimes it's a it, it's sort of a version of mindfulness, but it really is 
anything. I mean, whether it's I'm going to sit down and read or listen to hip hop and vinyl, there are things that I already had. I'd already gotten into vinyl, but to suddenly just flip the switch and be like, this is the ritual of I'm going to pick the record and I'm, or I'm going to get my day started for work with a little bit of jazz and my espresso. But leaning into the ritual of things has helped me. That was sort of my very first coping mechanism. And that also allowed me to do things, funnily enough, that I don't love doing. So not a big fan of doing dishes. But when I turned it into a ritual where I would listen to the news on my smart speaker, and it became that time that I would give to do that thing. And the second thing, and this is more recent, is I also realized, and this goes back a little bit to something that Marsha, one of our guests on the masculinity Twitter space said, when she talked about how she wants men to step up. And it was a very, in some ways, traditional concept around masculinity, but it's something that I find that I've savored stepping into. This sense, because I've been a procrastinator my whole life and I got away with it, which was worse. So as now a fully formed adult, I find a lot of pleasure in just sort of knuckling down and doing the thing that I don't want to do taxes, you know, going to the doctor, making the appointment, taking out the trash, uh, you know, doing the things that I don't want to do. And so I've started doing it more, you know, like a Sunday where, you know, I could just kind of faff about and play video games, but instead I'm like, no, you know, there's laundry and I, I could get that done and, and the plants need watering. And suddenly I just get into this, like, kind of a little angry because it's a little like, oh, just fuck it. Like, I don't want to have it hanging over me. <laughs> I'm just like, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it. I'm going to do all these things. And then I do them. And then I realize that I feel good that I got shit done. And so it's this weird hybrid model between like just the get the get things done. I love I love that answer. So I, I there's, there's so much there that I relate to. One is just the pleasure of rituals. I think that just I think rituals give us a lot of pleasure in life. Oftentimes in my morning is kind of like this competition between how late can I sleep in and yet still arrive to my favorite coffee shop to get my favorite table and read the newspaper at my favorite table with a cappuccino where the guy makes it just perfectly. And I know who my competitors are for that table. And this morning I won, suckers. There's <laughs> um, competitors? Oh, That's yeah. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. They're all like coming by my table because they want my table. They're giving me the side eye. I'm like, yeah, keep walking, fucker. <laughs> and I think that thing about ritual is tied to the other thing that you've discovered of like these things that maybe you had been putting off, which I think can cause anxiety, right? When there's stuff that you know you ought to be doing, but you're not doing, that you found ways to make them more pleasurable. That's definitely true for me. I mean, one of the things, so exercise has been a great coping mechanism, but if you do a lot of exercise, it requires a lot of stretching. And that's not something that I like to do at all. And then I discovered, well, why don't I allow myself to do something that I don't really give myself permission to do, which is watching gadget reviews on YouTube. It's like this thing where I feel like, I don't know, it's a waste of time, right? But if I'm doing it while I'm stretching, it's like, okay, so that's my that's my evening thing. I spend 20 minutes watching gadget reviews on YouTube while I stretch. Are there things that used to work for you in terms of the mechanisms that you use for your own mental health that stopped? No. That just don't anymore? I've definitely reformed find them um so i feel like they get a little bit better with every passing year um so what's an example of that of like mostly just not trying to force too much like i've 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 really come to appreciate the fact that 
the things that give me pleasure can also give me stress if I try to do too much of it and mm. allow myself to have slack in the day, in my schedule. I think one coping mechanism that I can have based on how I grew up is trying to be in control of my time and being in control of my environment. And there was such emotional instability and such a, such a lack of stability, reliability as I was growing up that now it feels really good to be in charge and to be the one who can make that stability. But sometimes I can take that to the extreme and I fill up my calendar with a bunch of stuff happening so that I'm like in control of every minute and I know what's happening and I don't allow uncertainty to just sort of take shape. And life is really great when you don't always know what's going to be happening next, when you allow for some spontaneity, when you, I mean, you're great at this. You, when I call you randomly, you tell me I'm a weirdo for calling you randomly, but you pick up the phone. You know, a lot of people won't because they're like, oh, this isn't scheduled. I can't talk right now. And I can be that type of person. So I'm trying to be the type of person who picks up the random phone call now. What about you? I'm going to start calling you randomly, man. No, you won't. <laughs> you've, threatened, you've threatened to do that in the past. It's not in your nature. I know. It's, it really is. <laughs> it just isn't. It feels like such a, like, what am I, a psychopath? Um, not that you are. You're a very sweet man. So what are the things that have stopped working for me? I... I've definitely left things by the wayside. I get, I have these two modes where I do things, they work, I feel better. And then I'm like, I'm, I'm fine now. That's my biggest challenge. So whether it's journaling or exercise or whatever, sticking to a thing is really tricky for me because I'll start feeling better. And then you're like, oh, I, that's okay, great. My blood pressure is under control. I can start eating unhealthy or I don't need to exercise or I don't need to do this. If you don't find your way back to those rituals, to those things that are working for you, that are keeping you in a good mental space, then, you know, you'll find yourself right back at your low point eventually. Yeah. It's so interesting. You and I have, you know, our, the way we grew up was so similar and we have so many similarities that I tend to assume that we're just completely similar in all ways. But our two answers right now, I think showed one of the ways that we're really different, which is that I can be way too rigid sometimes in my routines and can be a little bit of a control freak that way. And I think you sometimes would like to be more rigid with your routines and have less. Completely. Yeah. And I am curious now that there is so much more of a focus on trauma, mental health and therapy than there was in the past. At the same time, it seems that we're in more of a mental health crisis, according to the newspaper headlines, like the New York Times just published this big series about the adolescent mental health crisis in the United States. There's all of this talk of, and this is very US centric, but talk of deaths of despair, right, in terms of suicides and um, overdoses. So what do you make of this strange parallel that's happening over the past few years where our mental health seems to be getting worse while we're while it seems like there's more acceptance to try to do something about it. To me, it's pretty obvious. I think that we're in a perfect storm of variables where on the one hand, we have technologies. And by that, I broadly mean social media, the tools that we have, that we use, that we have to use, that in many ways are designed to exacerbate our worst impulses. They're meant to create engagement and they use a lot of cognitive trickery to do it. They lean into the basic biology of the human brain in a way 
that's good for these companies and for their goals, but aren't necessarily good for mental health. So that's one, and I'll, I'll kind of put it right there. The other thing is that I think that when you create an environment where it's okay to acknowledge it, more people do acknowledge it. And maybe some of those people would have kind of gritted their way through life, you know, self-anesthetizing with alcohol or whatever the acceptable, you know, sex addiction, like these things that are like, they're not evident. They're not always outwardly evident. I feel like a couple of generations ago, the, the, the functional or the semi-functional alcoholic was just a really common thing. And at the same time, I think that we're also coming up on how imprecise the tools that we have to deal with mental health are. And that is a little terrifying and it can lead to despair because you would think that asking for help and acknowledging the problem would, you know, would take you to a solution very quickly. And that's not often the case. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think what you said about the technological moment that we're in, this really ties back to our earlier conversation on Twitter, where I feel like I was pretty optimistic back in say 2006 to 2010, that a lot of these social technologies were good for social connection. And I missed how much they would enable social comparison. And I think that's just so unhealthy to constantly be comparing yourself to others. And, you know, when we used to look at like Michael Jackson and Madonna, you can treat them as celebrities and you don't really relate to them. You're not really comparing yourself to them. But when you're celebrities or your influencers, the people that you're looking at and comparing yourself to really are the people who are around you or feel much more reachable or relatable. I think that puts an enormous amount of pressure, especially on young people, because they're the ones who have grown up with it, but on all of us. And I do feel that there's a little bit of a cultural, that the pendulum is starting to swing. I see a lot of t-shirts that say things like, I will not compete with you, or like, I'm not here to compete, or, you know, like, I want us all to succeed. And I think that's a really beautiful ethos, except when it comes to my favorite table at my coffee shop. <laughs> and fuck yeah, I'm going to compete which with case, you. fuck everyone else. <laughs> totally. <laughs> the other thing that you didn't touch on that I've been thinking about a little bit is the role of equality on mental health. So I feel like we've been born into this moment of a lot of um, conversation around how can we become a more equal society. And what that has led to is for some folks who are kind of on the top of the pyramid is this perceived loss of status, oftentimes based on identity, but also based on class, on all sorts of things that I think is really hard to grow up and then feel that you were sort of on top of the pyramid and now you're kind of treated as the deplorables or kind of, you know, you're, you're not, yeah. you've, you've lost status in society. And then for others coming to a real understanding of all of the oppression and discrimination that has existed in the past and everything that your ancestors and family and yourself has had to go through. And that just creates dissatisfaction for everybody, for all sides of it, right? And, and not a place where you can, not a greater story that you can come together in. So I, I do think that part of loneliness is that there are a lot of barriers, one driven by competition and social comparison, and the other just driven by this perception that we don't have enough in common, or you can't understand me based on you having a different mm. identity. Having your community, your tribe, your family, whatever you, you call it, 
is a really well-known and important aspect to any person's mental health. And I, you know, I get that. You know, there's this whole idea of self-love, like, oh, you have to love yourself before you can love. Like, I never knew, I never knew what that meant. What, beyond masturbation, what does self-love mean? It wasn't until I heard Chris Christie describe his experience on the talk TV show, The View. So like a Republican, what was he, governor from New Jersey, right, goes on to this liberal talk show. And I think he's been a guest a few times. And he's like, if you're confident in your personality, it's fun. They'll try to tear you apart, but you'll have a good time doing it. If you're not, they'll really tear you apart. And this idea of being confident in your, with your personality is something that I hadn't really thought about. But I realized that's an interesting way to describe self-love because for so long, I was insecure with my personality. I grew up, like my last two years of high school were in San Diego. Everybody was this cool surfer with blonde hair, extremely extroverted, would go to all the kegger parties, would engage with like the blonde girls in a certain type of way. And that wasn't me. And I felt like, well, that's the cool person. Then there's me. So I have to pretend like I'm this other thing. Um, and that creates anxiety. It's not good for mental health. It's not good for your identity. You're trying to be this other person and you feel shameful of who you are and how you became who you are. I'm realizing that there's this tension between being authentic to yourself and then being accepted by a tribe. And both of those things are so important for our mental health. And it's really hard to do that in the current culture. I want to close out by first acknowledging the fact that everyone has a very different experience with, with mental health. When I keep saying that it's trial and error, there's a, there's a, there's a silver lining to that, which is you never really know what's going to work for you. What's going to click until you try something. So try things, you know, and please share with us. Uh, we have a, a small group of listeners that we adore and are very grateful for. And I would love to hear some suggestions because some of those stick and they can be really random. The things that you go, yeah, this is the thing that really helped me, you know, um, discovering ASMR videos for me helped a lot at certain places with my insomnia. And that was someone random, a friend on Twitter that was like, hey, do you, you know, so maybe we can do a little less posturing and signaling around like our own trauma and what fucked up childhoods we all had and how much anxiety we're riddled with and maybe have more conversations about like hey i'm trying this thing and here it is you know maybe maybe it works for you i want to have just random conversations about rituals and mental health uh, hacks that help us get through modern living and i also just want to acknowledge that acknowledging mental health issues is still an enormous privilege because it means that you don't have to worry about survival. There's a whole lot of people that are in survival mode that don't get to worry about anxiety or insomnia or insecurities because they're too busy just surviving and getting through the day. Well said. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thanks as always, Luis. My pleasure, my buddy. And we'll keep it going. Uh, there'll be a Twitter space about this in a few weeks, so stay tuned. <laughs>